Welcome to episode one of the Psychology Godfather podcast. I'm your host, George Joseph. In today's episode, I will be interviewing Dr. Stanley Beecham, who's a best-selling author of the book Elite Minds. Dr. Beecham is a sports psychologist and worked at the University of Georgia under the famous football coach Vince Dooley. During the interview, we'll talk about his work with athletes and what it means to get into the the mindset of a champion, to face your fear of failure, to deal with performance anxiety, and much more. So stay tuned for the interview. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Beecham. We're really happy to have you here today. And I'd like to start off by having you talk about your background and what led you down this path to become a to becoming a sports psychologist. So really my my two primary interests in life were sports and um and human beings, specifically why we did what we did and why we didn't do things and what drove us and those types of things that were, you could say, psychological in nature. So when I graduated with a doctorate degree in clinical psychology, uh, what I really wanted to do was continue to work with athletes. And so I contacted Vince Dooley, who was the athletic director at Georgia at the time, and he had brought me in to work with the kickers on the football team over the past few years. And I basically approached him and said, uh, you know, Coach, there's going to be a day in time where every major college has a sports psychologist working with their athletes. Uh, why don't we, why don't we at Georgia be one of the first to do it? And so that was in 1994. And so we started the sports psychology program. Uh, and I stayed there a little over four years and we had a lot of success with it. Um, but during that time, I also was contacted by a number of business people who were really interested in, you know, performance as it relates to people in the workplace and also the concept of, of teamwork and building teams was really becoming popular in the 90s. And so my practice now consists really of two populations. One is I continue to work with athletes and I still work with some of the teams at Georgia. And I work with a number of corporate clients who hire me really to help them create an environment where their people can do their best work as well as help them create an environment where people can work together and collaborate as teams. So that that's how I spend most of my time, George. What about the in the book you talk about the fear of failure and what separates the winner from the loser? Can you tell us more about that? Well, what most people refer to as a fear of failure, what it really is is it's an overconcern for the outcome. In other words, if you're if you're doing a task or you're in the middle of, of doing a task, your mind can be focused on the task at hand, the doing, if you will, or your mind can be focused on the result. In other words, how is this going to turn out? What are other people going to think of me? Is it going to be good enough? Will I make enough money? Those types of things. So the, the outcome is almost always a distraction from the actual doing. Does that make sense? 
Yes. So when people not only are concerned about failure, but really want to do well uh, and over identify with the outcome, that's going to be problematic simply because it's distracting you from doing the activity itself. So what we know from working with elite athletes, when they are in the zone or in the flow, as we like to say, which is really an optimal mental state when we're essentially at our best, there's a couple of things we know about the human mind. And one is, is it's very quiet. So in other words, if, if someone just had played a spectacular game and then after the game, they're being interviewed and the interviewer says, you know, Hey George, what were you thinking about? You know, while you were setting that world record, you know, the answer is George, you weren't thinking about anything, but you feel like you need to make up an answer, you know, because you don't want to embarrass uh, the person asking the silly question. Uh, so the mind is quiet and specifically when we're at our best, we have no awareness of ourself. In other words, when human beings are doing really well in life, they don't think about themselves and they're not worried about themselves and whether it's not, whether or not it's going to work out for them. Conversely, when we as humans struggle, we pretty much incessantly think about ourselves. We obsess about ourselves. How am I doing? Am I good enough? Will I make enough money? What will other people think of me? So this is an interesting thing is because most people identify high performance with thinking about a particular thing. There's a, there's a book out right now entitled how champions think by Bob Rotella, who's, you know, very well-known sports psychologist and someone I worked with years ago. And, and, and the irony of, of the title really is, is that when champions are doing their thing, they're not thinking <laughs> and they're certainly not thinking about themselves or the outcome or what they hope will happen in the future. They're in the yeah, so zone, the so zone, to speak. The mind is quiet. So what happens is when your mind gets really quiet, and I'm talking about the, 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 the funnel, the frontal and prefrontal cortex of the brain. When that part of your brain gets really quiet, the part of your brain where your motor cortex is, where you see and hear those, those aspects of the brain are not interfered with and they will work much more efficiently. So we know that when we're in the zone, we don't have any awareness of ourself. The other thing that's interesting is that when humans get in an optimal state like the zone, whatever it is that they're doing, their experience of it is that it's easy, even if they're doing something that's difficult or strenuous. It's, it becomes effortless. And this is what's surprising to people after they perform at the highest level. Oftentimes what they'll say is, is it didn't feel hard or it didn't feel difficult or I didn't sense that I was you know, pushing up against something. I wasn't thinking about the score or the or the time well, of like my say, performance. Take a I was runner, just doing example, it, and they just you know ran their fastest race of their life. They will not generally describe a situation where they were really suffering, or there was a time when they really weren't. Uh, I'm just saying the experience itself. Uh, there's an ease to it. Uh, the, the third thing that we know when humans get in the in the zone and, or or flow is that their sensory perceptions change. So in other words, you'll hear people say things like time slowed down or the ball looks really big. And this is simply because you're not using your prefrontal cortex. In other words, you're not getting and you're not thinking and the thinking is not getting in your way of the doing. Yeah. 
I see. So, for example, um, if I'm taking a golf lesson and the golf instructor is, you know, giving me feedback about my swing and I'm thinking about what he said as I'm trying to do it, I may end up having some performance anxiety and duffing the ball because I'm using my prefrontal cortex too much. You know, you bring up a good thing with golf. I work with a lot of golfers. Yeah. And what happens is you go and you get instruction, and a lot of them end up coming away with a swing thought or a, pertinent, a specific aspect of the swing that they think about. And, and what's interesting is, is they really hang on to that as if that's something that's going to save them. And it, and it can to some degree. But what's interesting, when you talk to elite golfers when they're playing really well, they don't have a swing thought. Their mind is really quiet. Uh, if, if you use the example that you gave of taking a lesson, you know, it's possible during the whole time you're taking the lessons and playing after that you really struggle. Then maybe you go away from the, the game for a month and then you come back and you, you know, you go out to the driving range and you're not really thinking about the lessons or what you're supposed to do. You just put a few balls down. And lo and behold, you're hitting the best golf shots of your life, right? And you go, wow, how, how did this happen? You know, I right. hit a ball in right. a month. And it, it happens because your mind's being really quiet and you're getting out of the way of yourself. You're, you're turning off the noise, the, all the neurotic thought processes, and you're internalizing the, exactly. what you really learned from the exactly. instructor you're saying later down the road. Do you have any thoughts about, and, and this, you know, I think may be somewhat related, not perfectly, but I'm sure you remember back in the heyday when Lance Armstrong was the, the champion cyclist before the whole blood doping scandal went about. Um, it was often said that he always won because he never had a fear of failure. Were you I'm familiar not, with that? But I would say what we know in hindsight. Okay. Um, he may not have had a fear of failure, but he certainly had an obsession with winning. I would argue that those are basically uh, two sides to the same coin, right? The, 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 the person who has a tremendous fear right. of not doing well also has a tremendous desire to do well. Does that make sense? Yeah. What I, what I want, what I want people to understand is that as long as we obsess about the outcome of whatever it is that we're doing, it distracts you from doing the task. Very good point. I have a, a person that is trying to get into running and they're afraid to sign up for the race out of a fear of their name coming in the last place. So what would your advice be to kind of not a professional, but an amateur athlete that's trying to, you know, something new, but they're so afraid of, the result that keeps them from even entering the race? I would say enter the race and try to come in last place. <laughs> Great answer. I like that very much. Yeah. Uh, I would say let's let the goal be to complete the race, but make sure you come in last place. I like that. That's, that's, uh, and let, let's, let's, let, let's let that let be the goal. So in other words, the real goal is just completing the race, right? Correct. Good, good feet. And, good. and one, of the thing, one of the things I might say to kind of trick their mind, if you will, is say, let's try to come in last place so that if you get near the finish line and there's someone behind you, I want you to, to slow down or go back and let them, you know, run backwards and let them finish in front of you. 
So then after the race, when people said, yeah, you came in last place, you go, yeah, isn't that great? That's what my goal was. I, lo- I succeeded. I love it. I love it. And, and uh, I, I hope the person will, will, will do that. Um, kind of going in a different direction, although I guess everything we're talking about is, is connected, the, your thoughts about the mind-body connection and I guess specifically how stress um, affects our health and our body and our, maybe our athletic performance, et cetera. Your thoughts about that? Well, I think that we are an anxious people as Americans. So we know statistically that one in four of us have a diagnosable psychological disorder. And we know that one in five, or basically 80% of those who have a psychological disorder, it's an anxiety disorder. Okay? And so we are people who, the, symptom of, the symptoms of our anxiety are obviously we worry and we're stressed out, but it in, impedes our ability to sleep, it impedes our ability to be in relationship with ourselves and each other and so people will either go to the doctor and get a prescription or they'll self-medicate alcohol or you know recreational drugs but if you think about this whole anxiety uh, epidemic if you will what it really is is fear in other words a a two-year-old will say uh you know mommy i'm afraid i'm scared a 20-year-old will say i'm under a lot of pressure i feel stressed but, but fear is fear. And so what's interesting to me, George, is as Americans, what is it that we're afraid of? I mean, we know statistically we're doing better than any of our cohorts have ever done in terms of how our culture defines success, which is money and things. So we know that we, you know, the, we're the all-time best ever at that, but yet we still walk around anxious and afraid. And so... What makes me interest, what I've become interested in is what is it exactly that we're afraid of? And when you really get into it with people, most of us realize I really don't have anything to be afraid of. But the problem is I have practiced being afraid for so long, I can't stop doing it. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And I think in addition to that, we are bombarded with these negative messages with the you know horrific news and so on and so forth that it almost reinforces the fear don't you think yeah i think it's really interesting that anxious people go and eat an appetite of information that would make them worry more uh, personally i don't watch the news anymore and i rarely need a newspaper and i find that whatever i need to know about i, I somehow you know you just you you just you, you pick it up. I'm aware of what's going on in the Houston area now, for example, with the floods. But yet I can watch, you know, ten or fifteen seconds of it on the TV and I've got it, right? Right. I don't I don't need to sit there and watch an hour of the coverage or a full day of the coverage, which I think some people do. I I, I, what I, I agree with what you. I'm getting, yeah, what I'm getting to is is ultimately we as human beings, we have a brain that's designed to keep us alive, not not to make us happy. And what's interesting now is we're really obsessed with being happy and we take staying alive for granted. So if you go back two hundred and fifty million years when we had roughly the same brain, 
what this brain got really good at doing when you're, you know, living in a tree out in the jungle or living in a cave on the side of a hill, the brain was really good at, at scanning the environment and finding any threats to our life. Right. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if you're sitting by the fire at night and you hear, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a limb break in the distance, you immediately stop and pay attention to that. You know, that could be a predator coming up on you. So we have this brain that is really good at scanning the environment and, and basically finding danger and then focusing on it. Okay. So that's what the brain does really well. So it, it, it's no surprise then that now we're really good at being uh, anxious. And so what I've ultimately we have to do is we have to retrain our brain to not you know, go looking for what's wrong. But what we, but most of us know someone who is a really anxious person. And if you spend any time with them, what you notice is that's what their brain does is it looks around and finds out what's wrong and then focuses on that. And that's a good way to make yourself miserable. You're kind of manufacturing your own anxiety when it doesn't exist. Well, the brain does basically two things. I mean, if you think of the brain as a factory, it makes two things. It makes thoughts and it makes emotions. Okay, I'm kind of drawing this out in a crude way, but I think most of the listeners will get it. And so the question is, is when I have a thought, do I realize that I made that thought? Or do I think that that thought came from somewhere else? See, most people don't have enough awareness of their own thought process and their emotional process that they over-identify with it. And what I mean by that is that most of us become our thoughts and emotions. We don't think, we don't have the understanding that I have thoughts, but I'm not my thoughts. I have emotions, but I'm not the emotion. Okay? We over-identify with it. And so you'll hear it in language. So in other words, people don't say, you know, I, I'm experiencing the feeling of sadness. They say, I am sad. They don't say, I'm thinking worried thoughts. They say, what? I am worried. And this is really interesting. You know, if, if you over-identify with your thoughts and emotions and you think that that's what you are, then obviously you're in for quite a roller coaster ride. But what I try to get people to understand is you, you have thoughts and your brain makes up thoughts, but you're not your thoughts. And you have an emotional experience or emotional response to something, but you're not the emotion. That's 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 an excellent insight, and I, I think that's a, a you know a tremendous challenge for people to be able to 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 work on and to change. But I completely agree with you. I think that's excellent insight. Well, if you think about kind of some of the new fads that you've seen in our culture, yoga, meditation, those kind of things, which are more Eastern, you know, coming out of Hinduism, Buddhism, those religions, uh, part of part of what they're in meditation, they're asking you to do is to, number one, stop thinking, right, which is very difficult to do. But the other thing is just to tune into yourself and observe yourself as an observer. In other words, just as you stand in front of the mirror and you look at yourself, you realize that what you're seeing is not actually you. It's a reflection of you. Right? right. You look at the mirror, right? You understand that that's not me. That's just a reflection of me. That's what my brain thinks I look like. Yes. Yeah. Now, now an animal may not, you know, an animal looks in a mirror and, and thinks it sees another animal, right? Correct. Yeah. But fortunately, most of us are smart enough to realize that when I look in a mirror, that's not me. That's just a reflection of me. And by changing my body, I can change the image in the mirror. 
And I want people to think about their emotions and thoughts the same way, that you can change it. You can, you can do something to alter it. You can change the anxious thought to an unanxious thought. You can change the, you know, the, the, the frightened emotional state from a not frightened, you know, to a mm-hmm. calm emotional state. You have to practice. And, and what sits at the center of that is simply the ability to observe oneself. If you can learn to do that, you're going to radically change your life. That's wonderful, and and it seems that to me that the people I've worked with that suffer with a lot of anxiety, you know, um, it happens so quickly that they can't quite stop themselves to 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 do exactly what you're saying. Just to it's almost like our automatic reflex. And if I could teach them to to be better able to step outside of the self, like you're saying, uh, that would be you know, a wonderful, helpful tool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are your, going back to the book that you talk about, which um, I've I really enjoyed the placebo, which is, you know, very fascinating, obviously you said versus the nocebo. Was that my, yes. Yes. Can you tell me what knows what that means? So, <clears throat> The placebo, most people know placebo in the terms of where they would give uh, one group a, a medication, a real medication, and the other group they would give what they call a placebo, which would basically be like a sugar tablet that did nothing. But yet they would tell people when they took the placebo, let's say, for example, it's a population of people who have migraine headaches. They would give them the placebo and they would say, this is a new drug that we have. And as soon as you take it, you're going to, within a couple minutes, see your migraine headache going away. And if the patient believes the doctor and has faith in the doctor, then what you would see a very high percentage of time is after they took basically the sugar pill, their migraine headache would go away. And there's been many, many studies uh, that's demonstrated that this is true. In other words... It's not so much the pill that you take, but your belief about what the pill is going to do that affects you. All right? The nocebo is just the opposite. You could give someone a sugar pill and tell them, you know, that if you took this pill, it would, you know, make you sick and give you a stomach ache, and, and you would see the same thing happening. Uh, things like hypnosis and other treatments, uh, faith healing, those types of things are strongly affected by what people believe. So the, you know, the, the moral of the story is, is that your belief system is extremely powerful, that what you believe can make you sick or, or, or heal you. And so we need people to understand that you're constantly telling yourself a story about yourself, right? Right. So the hype so the hypochondriac what they're constantly saying is there's something wrong with me. I'm sick and I need to find out what's wrong with me. And then they go to enough doctors who say, yeah, you have this problem. And then they go, yeah, I knew it all along, you know, Mm -hmm. not realizing that they, they created it. So that, that's the point I'm trying to make is I want people to really understand the power of the mind, the power of the belief system, that there's a direct correlation between, you know, what we believe and how we think in our physical, physical condition, stress being a classic example of this. Uh, if you think stressful, worried thoughts all day, guess what? Your body will physically manifest, you know, those symptoms. You'll, you'll release chemicals like cortisol and norepinephrine and you'll actually alter your body and make yourself, make yourself sick. So we know that we have the capacity to do this. 
You know, this ties directly into another part of the book, which I enjoyed about the, the you, you wrote about the Buddhist monks and the, these marathons that they would run consecutively and, you know, their, kind of their mindset about the suffering. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So um, I have worked a, a great deal with runners and distance runners. And when I came across um, this sect of Tendai Buddhist monks who are in Japan, and, and they go through a long ritual, ritualization process of where they basically are trying to, you could argue, kind of gain control of themselves and their body. And so they voluntarily sign up for this, but basically the first year they agree to do, it's a, it's a 40 kilometer run. There's actually two tracks. There's a 30 kilometer track that goes through the mountain and there's a 40 kilometer track that's flatter. But basically 40 kilometers is pretty close to, to a marathon, which is 26 miles, right? So you're talking about 24 and change versus 26. But basically what these monks do for 100 consecutive days and they go out at night, they do this 40-kilometer, this marathon, and they do it for 100 consecutive days. And what's interesting is is they don't really train for it in the sense of the way our athletes train. They do some mental preparation for it, and, and they're, in, you know, they're not starting off in terrible shape. But part of the deal is that once you begin this process, you have to complete it. And if for any reason you fail to complete it, you take your own life. So they carry on them uh, basically a, a dagger, a short knife, and they also carry a rope that's tied around their waist to kind of hold their robes together that, that they would potentially hang themselves with. Now, it's it's rare that they take their life, and, and some have, and some have died along the way. But what's interesting to me is someone who's interested in human potential is if you're out in the middle doing something and the two options that you have are to continue on or to take your own life, you'll probably find yourself doing things that you never thought you would do, right? Right. Like, you know, finish a marathon. I mean, for, I mean, if you, if you just kind of, you know, made it, you know, simple to us, imagine entering to a, entering a marathon and the deal was you either had to finish the marathon or take your life. I, I think you would find pretty much everyone finishing the marathon. I, I think so. Yes. <laughs> right. And so, really, the the importance of that is is you know, in a religion like Buddhism, where there's reincarnation, death is really not a tragic, terrible thing. What what's actually much more tragic is to say you're going to do something or put yourself out there uh, with some intention and not follow through. That that would be embarrassing. I mean, that's how you get the kamikazes from World War II, right? Dying in war was not a shame, but if you were taken prisoner, that was an embarrassment to you, your family, your country. So it was, in their eyes, better to die than to be taken prisoner. Now, some people today would say that's just crazy and ridiculous. But what, I'm, what I want people to understand, the concept I'm trying to make in the book is, is that if you're really willing to, sacrifice sacrifice yourself completely and put yourself out there you will find yourself doing things that you never thought you would do versus you know i got really uncomfortable so i stopped and both of those examples that you know uh 
taking some notes as you're speaking that they both the the examples they involve the a religious aspect of faith where they the the sense of belief is tied into religion what are your thoughts on that connection to what you're saying well in, in buddhism it's not so much of of believing in a dogma like you have in Judaism and Christianity and Islam. Okay. Uh, the, the fundamental teaching of, of Buddha is, is this, is that our life is difficult. Our life is full of suffering. But the reason that we suffer is not because of what's happened to us. The reason that we suffer is because we don't want what's happened to us, which is referred to in Buddhism as desire. So desire is the root of suffering, not the event itself. I'll give you an example. Let's say you and I are going to play golf, okay? Okay. And when we get out of the car, it begins to rain. And you go, oh, this is terrible. I can't believe this. The fact of the matter is you're upset, not because it's raining. You're really upset because you don't want it to be raining. Or you said, this is my only chance this week to play golf, and I can't believe this is happening to me again, as if the rain is about you. You see, Mm -hmm. you know, a a mile away is a guy who just planted his garden and he walks out on his back porch and sees it raining. He goes, oh, thank you, God. This is wonderful. I don't have to go out and water the the garden today because it's raining. So our so so what I'm getting to is is what 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 the Buddhists teach is that you suffer not because of what happens to you. It's not the events of your life. It's not that someone passed away or that you lost your job. That's not why you're suffering. You're suffering because in your mind you're saying, this shouldn't be this way. This shouldn't happen to me. So the end of suffering is acceptance, including, you know, the end of your own life, your own mortality, which is really difficult for Westerners to wrap their minds around because we have this belief that you know, if I want something enough and I desire it enough, then it will come to me. I see. It almost sounds like in, in our culture, we're, you know, listening to your example about the Buddhists, we're much more narcissistic and self-absorbed than they are. Does that fit? That, that's true. That, 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 I think that is true. I think that in, in Eastern culture, there's more of an emphasis on fitting in and being in a part of the group, the tribe, the team. In Western culture, there's more of an emphasis of, you know, be a superstar, stand out, be noticed, be special. For example, all these uh, selfies and, you know, I this and I that, and it's our culture is all about me and look how great I am, which sounds quite the opposite of what you're describing. Exactly. Okay. Unfortunately... Uh, people of the East have been really interested in what we're doing in the West and have worked really hard to imitate us and, and they pay a price. I think, you know, the most obvious being that they've developed our, our appetites, both, um, food and beverage. And so now you go to countries like Japan and China where they had years ago, very little cancer and heart disease, but now they eat the animal products that we do. And guess what? They have high levels of cancer and heart disease like we do and they have high levels of alcoholism and substance abuse like we do true and then they can create the medications and we can pay for them right (laughs) 
the pharmaceutical companies can make some money off of that, but that's just a joke. That's a joke, but there's probably some truth to it. Um, do you have any thoughts? I know that that's, that's a completely different, that's completely off the wall. Um, chapter six, you described your work you did with Miss Barbara Parker, if it's okay to mention her name, I'm not sure, an athlete uh, that was a, um, a, a Olympic runner, and I really liked what you said about that. Do you have some thoughts to share about that work you did with her? Well, the, 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 the point I was making with the chapter with Barbara is basically she came to me and said, you know, I want to be one of the top 15 runners in the world in other words when you get to the olympics she was a steeplechaser um that's where you jump over the big hurdles and go over the water jump 3000 meter race and she had been in the previous olympics and her goal was basically to get into the finals which is the top 15 so you go through preliminaries and into the finals and so my question to her is you know you've got a number of practices i think it was like 200 before the Olympics and I wanted her to think about what would be the difference between a person who was training to win the Olympics versus say a person who was just training just to get into the, the Olympics my belief is that when you're training to do something big like win a championship you'll train with a level of intensity that you wouldn't otherwise train you, I see the same thing with my work clients when you're trying to do something that you really believe is significant you'll have an intensity and a purpose that you don't normally have and and so and so that was really the point with her is you know you're going to train just to get into the top 15 i said you know who are the who are the women who are training to win a medal you know and who are the few that are training to actually win the event and and how how is their training going to be different than yours simply because what they're trying to do is something a little bit bigger than what you're trying to do and she was able to realize that, yeah, I really need to, you know, train with the intention that, you know, on any given day, if things come together, I could potentially win this thing. And she ended up during that training cycle uh, running the fastest time she'd ever had. She She's from the U.K. She broke the U.K. record. Um, she got in a race with a bunch of really good women and I think came in second, beat a bunch of them. This was, this was leading up to the Olympics. Um, so that, that was the point is, is most of us, we kind of dilute our goal and we don't really go big, right? We just say, Hey, I, you know, I'd like to get a job somewhere versus, you know, I want to work for this particular company or do this particular thing. I think it's good to, um, let yourself aspire to do something of, of, of significance, not, not because you're special, but just a realization that it's possible that I have the ability to do things that I never realized that I could do, which I think is true for all of us. You know, I think there are very few human beings who go through life and then as they're leaving their body, have the realization that I maximized this thing and I, you know, sucked all the marrow from the bone, did everything I possibly could. You know, those are precious few people. And, but the re the reality is, is that's available to all of us. Um, but we have to first, realize what are the limitations that we place on ourselves and be honest with ourselves about where those things came from and at the end of the day we all have beliefs about ourselves that simply aren't true um, we have a way of minimizing ourselves of 
of saying I'm not good enough, I'm not there yet, maybe someday I will be. And, and that type of belief system, when not only does it limit you and harm you, but everyone that you come into contact with is, uh, you know, experiences that loss with you. It would be um, almost a sin to end the podcast without touching upon John McEnroe, who you wrote about in your book, and I had the pleasure of meeting uh, back in the day. Can you tell us more about that chapter, uh, specifically about John McEnroe and you know his temper and so on and so forth? Well, the, I, I think the thing that I referred to in the book about McEnroe is people talked about how McEnroe got angry but still played well. And you know, I said, but yeah, who did McEnroe get angry with? Uh, he never got angry at McEnroe. He got angry at the umpire or the opponent or someone else, but he never, he never pointed the gun at himself, if you will. Uh, what I find with most athletes that I work with is that when they get frustrated or angry, they're angry at themselves and that becomes destructive. I'm not saying that McEnroe's anger was helpful to him, but I'm just saying it didn't harm him like most people's anger does because he wasn't mad at himself. How could I be mad at myself when I'm so perfect? In other words, total. Exactly. exactly. And he used that to kind of, you know, encourage himself more. It's kind of like now it's me against the world. You know, not only do I have to beat, beat the guy on the other side of the net, but I got to beat the officials too. Okay. And so he was able to use that to really intensify and focus himself. What an incredible human being John McEnroe is. Uh, very gifted athlete. Uh, and I want to thank you, Dr. Beecham, for this interview. I, I could keep going on forever. Um, how can our podcasters find you or get a copy of your book? Can you tell us how to find you? The best way to get in touch with me is my website, which is drstanbeecham.com. Beecham is B-E-E-C-H-A-M. If you go to the website, you can order my book, Elite Minds, through the website, or you can go to Amazon or whomever you order books from and get and get the book that way. Well, all right. There you go. What a great interview with Dr. Beecham. I appreciate you being here, Dr. Beecham. Thank you, George. Well, thank you for listening to The Psychology Godfather. We look forward to our next episode. Be sure to subscribe and give us feedback. And we'll see you next time on the Psychology Godfather, where we bring you the podcast, You Cannot Refuse. George Joseph, out.